podcast land. Welcome to the last week of April. It's here. April was five weeks this year. It was amazing. Spring has sprung. <laughs> um, we are back with In Your Ear Holes with another episode. Uh, and before we talk about who we're going to talk about, uh, I'm Rebecca. I'm Becca. And we are the, the Rebecca's. Rebecca's. Okay. <laughs> uh, we wanted to jump in. And before we do, though, we're going to talk about Marjorie Merriweather Post, who is a fabulous, dynamic lady about town, or was rather. She hasn't been about anywhere in a while. Uh, but before we jump in on that, we just want to preview our May episodes. We are going to talk about some fun stuff. We're going to talk about presidential children. We're going to talk about another election episode. We're going to talk about a Supreme Court justice. And this uh, Memorial Day at the end of May uh, is the 100th anniversary of the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier at Arlington Cemetery, which is something that Becca and I love to visit. And with tours, we love to talk about it. We are just, we're so excited. And the 100th anniversary gives us a chance to really dig in uh, and talk about that for Memorial Day. So that's our May schedule. It's going to be really great. And we're still plotting out our June schedule and we're going to move into the summer. And we just want to, we're getting busier and busier as the weather gets warmer. We're starting to give our walking tours. So if you are in the DC area and want to come on a tour with your podcast, your favorite podcast hosts, please come. We give great tours. We're really very much fun and delightful in person. We are just as much fun in person as we are uh, in audio form only. Honestly, I think we might be a bit more fun in person. I'm not going to lie. We also are still running our first ladies promotion. Uh, Thank you all as always to all of our patrons. We, you are the wind beneath our wings. Always people who've supported the pod are just the bestest. And you have literally made this whole year possible and we're continuing to grow the pod and could not do it without you. Uh, And so we are hoping to get new um, podcast listeners and new patrons so that we can do a first ladies special. We are planning that and sort of strategizing and hoping hoping to do that at some point uh, in the fall. That's going to be a late August, September thing. So if we're almost at our goal of patrons. So if you know somebody might enjoy a little bit of history, a little bit of scandal uh, and some intrigue, uh, as well as two fabulous ladies, definitely turn them on to our pod. And we are so excited. We're going to do first ladies in addition to our regularly scheduled episodes. It's going to be lit, you guys. So that's all of our logistical stuff. And let's dig in. Becca, Marjorie Merriweather Post. We started this podcast. Our very first episode was Alice Roosevelt Longworth. And, you know, we, if you listen to the podcast at all, you know, we have a love for like wild women of Washington. And I feel like Marjorie Merriweather Post is sort of the other side of a coin from Alice Roosevelt Longworth. She's like just as influential, just as big a figure. She was um, scandalous in her own way. She was dramatic in her own way. But they're kind of like two sides of the coin for me. And they both sort of left their mark in DC in two different ways. And so I sort of love that as we're like a year into this podcast that we're sort of coming back around to another larger than life figure. Although I think that kind of like Alice Roosevelt Longworth, Marjorie Merriweather Post doesn't get as much love and appreciation as she should get. She's mostly remembered for her estate, which we'll talk about a little bit later. But uh, let's kind of dig into Marjorie Merriweather Post uh, is life. That's going to be hard for me to say. I might just call her MMP, and I may or may not ask if you are down with MMP. Yeah, you know me. Because <laughs> um, it's just, it, it does not trip off my tongue. Uh, she is born in 1887 in Illinois. She is the only daughter of a man named C.W. Post. He is like Post Serial, the serial magnate. And he is like the guy or one of kind of two guys to bring cereal to the masses in the United States. So just a little bit about her dad. He founded what was called the Postum Cereal Company in 1895 in Michigan. He was a patient in a sanitarium called Battle Creek, which was run by a guy named John Harvey Kellogg, who is like the other big cereal guy. Who is himself full of very odd and interesting notions, and we should do like a whole pot on him because he was a trip, friends. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, we've done the current war. We should probably do the cereal war at some point because all those cereal dudes were crazy. 
So Post is, and this will give you maybe a little bit of a foreshadowing to what's going to happen to CW Post, but he is in the sanitarium. He struggles with mental illness. And while he's at the sanitarium run by Mr. Kellogg, he's given a very specific diet. And Post really believes that this diet has cured him, that this has helped him with all his mental ills. And he sort of leaves the sanitarium being like, I'm going to start my own cereal company. People need to be eaten cereal. This stuff is good for you. It's healthy, nutritious. It will keep you morally upstanding. It's good stuff. So he takes $78, invests that in equipment, which back then that was a good amount of money, but he wasn't from money. He's a self-made man. He invests in cereal equipment and he makes cereal in his barn. So that's kind of how CW Post gets started. Uh, And he started with something called Postum, which doesn't sound appetizing at all. But then his next cereal, which was much more popular and is still made today, was Grape Nuts. Grape Nuts is so great. So they've been making Grape Nuts for like more than 100 years. Oh my gosh. I ate Grape Nuts as a kid all the time. It's so, so good. I love that he, that was his second cereal. I knew he made Grape Nuts. I didn't know it was his second cereal. That's so great. So two things for CW Post that are really, really important advertising and marketing. He realizes that, you know, he's introducing a new product on the market. He's got to convince people to eat cereal. He's got to convince people of all of its health benefits. And so he is really, really big on marketing, advertising. This is in an era where food marketing is just starting to explode. And these are lessons that um, Marjorie Merriweather Post is definitely going to sort of absorb. She's going to see that it's not always about having the best product. It's about having good marketing for that product. So she really is raised um, as her father is becoming this self-made cereal magnate. He's becoming this big you know, entrepreneur and business owner. So she is pursuing education. Her parents think it's important for her to be well-educated. So she goes to a place called Mount Vernon Seminary and College, which is in Washington, D.C. It was a private woman's college founded in 1875, but it actually started almost 10 years earlier by a woman named Elizabeth Summers, who started tutoring sort of young women. Right after the Civil War, there's an interest uh, and a boom sort of in educating women. And so she starts by tutoring the women of well to do Washington families and she's so good at it and it's so popular that she founds a college and when when she went to the college it was located on M Street at M and 11th so right in the heart of downtown and when Marjorie Merriweather Post went to Mount Vernon Seminary she was a classmate of somebody we have done on the podcast who we love very much Rebecca do you know who her classmate was I do So this gives you the the idea of the kind of young women attending the school. These are women with either money or political connection. They're definitely kind of the creme de la creme of the city. And these are women who are all about to sort of come of age in this time in the country where things are changing as we approach the turn of the century. If you're familiar with Mount Vernon Seminary and College, that sounds familiar. Today, it's part of George Washington University, and it's their Mount Vernon campus. It's actually located in the Palisades area. I actually spent my freshman year at GW at Mount Vernon doing not the things you were supposed to be doing, um, (laughs) like studying. Fantastic. (laughs) Um, I enjoyed my time. Uh-huh. On the Vern is what we called it, nice. which makes me sound 100 years old. Um, Marjorie Merriweather Post really credited her time at Mount Vernon with really shaping her as a person. She was very involved with the school throughout her lifetime. She was one of the first trustees to have actually been an alumna. So she's one of the first female trustees of the college, um, but she would stay very connected. And that's what brings her to D.C. and starts the D.C. connection that's going to be part of MMP's entire life. Now, unfortunately, things are going to take a turn. In 1914, she's 27 years old and her father, C.W. Post, is going to commit suicide. So he struggled his whole life uh, with mental illness. Twist, cereal doesn't cure mental illness. So it doesn't matter how tasty and nutritious your cereal is. It's not going to cure your your mental problems. And um, so he commits suicide. She's 27. She has no brothers. She has no sisters. She's an only child. Her mother has already died at this point, so she's an orphan. And so she takes over the company. Now, this is a big deal. She's been raised in the business, and she kind of knew how it operated, but she's still inheriting this brand new business and this brand new industry. And she is, at the time that she inherits this company, the wealthiest woman in America. At the time, uh, 1914, she inherits $20 million. Today, that's about $525 million. That's insane to me. That's like an enormous amount of wealth. 
and to be given to a woman in a business just must have been so amazing like her father raises her in this business and she knows every aspect of it like it obvious was pretty obvious by that time there weren't going to be any other kids so she was his heir but she's also married by this time too and it really is interesting to me that like her husband is not a part of this and you know she's a young mother at this time she's 27 she's been married for a little bit she's got some kids and it really just interests me that this is what she chooses to do rather than hand this off which she obviously could have paid someone an enormous amount of money to run this for her she just says nope i'll do it myself yeah 1914 women can't vote yet and she's essentially a ceo of a multi-million dollar company it's really sort of bonkers. She is going to be the director of the post company, which we're going to call it the post company, but it undergoes a lot of names, which we'll maybe touch on. But um, let's just call it post for simplicity from 1914 to 1958. So for about 40 years of her life, this is what she does. She is, as Rebecca said, very involved with the business, very much on a big picture level. Like she is an innovator. She is interested in kind of entrepreneurial innovation and discovery. She's also an excellent manager, something that I think women in general are. She's not afraid to delegate. She's not afraid to cultivate talent within the company. She is very loyal to her employees. She almost always promotes from within. She's really good at identifying strong managers and good partners. Rebecca mentioned one of her husbands. Uh, Spoiler, she has four husbands. We'll talk about them in a little bit. Um, But her second husband, she realizes that he's got a really good head for this, and she invites him to help grow and expand the business. So she is not above sharing that responsibility if it means the business is going to thrive. So her father certainly starts the beginning of this empire, but she really builds it into what we know it today. She's so like, what I found to be interesting about her is she oversees really a big expansion of the business. Like she's really going to be instrumental in growing the cereal business. So the post business as well, but she also is going to acquire other food companies, some of which are going to be very familiar to us today. You can go down the street to your supermarket Hellman's mayonnaise, Jell-O, Baker's chocolate, Maxwell House coffee. Like these are all household names now. Uh, And she's going to acquire them as part of the post company. And eventually she changes the name. It's now, you you know them now, you know them under the name change, which is General Foods. Uh, She does this in 1929, but she's going to like have the savvy to acquire all of these things. And it just, I, she's got, she's got it going on, man. She's really cool. And, you know, it's not just acquiring things that are already popular. She often gets in on the ground floor with these things when she realizes that there are people who I think often remind her of her father, people who start these small businesses in their barn or their basement, but they're making a really good product. She swoops in very quickly and says, come be part of the General Foods Corporation, come be part of our family. So she is building what we kind of take for granted today, which are conglomerates. She builds a conglomerate at a time where that is still not much of a thing. And I think the most important acquisition she makes is with a man named Clarence Birdseye, which is his real name. It's so great. So (laughs) Clarence Birdseye. So first of all, before I tell you, you may already know what Clarence Birdseye is famous for, but she meets him while cruising on her yacht, the Hussar 4, I have to say four because she had other ones. The Hussar was a custom-built yacht, one of the fastest in the world. It broke the transatlantic record going across the Atlantic Ocean in 10 days and 21 hours, which in a yacht is pretty impressive. She would frequently take it down to the Florida Keys. That was one of her favorite spots in the country. They would hang out with people like Florence Ziegfeld. So she was out, you know, kind of like very much Roaring Twenties style, like out on her yacht, having parties, living it up, hobnobbing with celebrities. Eventually, she has another Hussar built called the Hussar 5, which she personally designed every inch of that boat. It was the largest private yacht in the world when it was built, and it was called the Floating Embassy because eventually she's married to a man who is the ambassador to the Soviet Union, and they would just take this yacht around the world to meet diplomats. So instead of like hosting diplomats in one place, they would go to them on their yacht because it was like a floating hotel. But while she is out on her yacht, 
she is going to meet a man named Clarence Birdseye, who's from Massachusetts, Rebecca. Yeah. He's from, from, from New England. Yep. Um, and he has developed a very important new technology. He's figured out how to freeze food so that it will last a long time and actually taste pretty decent. So he has pioneered preserving food through freezing methods. And she is eating lunch on her yacht one day. And she's like, man, this is really good. And she is told that it had actually been frozen for six months, this meal that she's just enjoyed. And you can imagine a woman like Marjorie Merriweather Post, who's used to eating the best of the best and the finest that money can buy. And she can tell the difference between what's, what's fresh and what's not, what's good and what's not. And she's eating a meal that she had no idea had been frozen for six months. And she's like, her mind is blown. She says it's one of the single most important meals of her life. And she's like, I must find the man who did this. And so she tracks him down. She tracks down Clarence Birdseye. And she is like, I want to buy everything you have. I want to invest in you. I want to take this technology. I want to sell frozen food. He is not so keen, to his credit, because he knows he has something that's revolutionary. And it takes her three years to convince him to sell, which I think shows her savvy and her tenacity because I think other business Men might have gotten tired of pursuing or tired of bird's eyes and transients. Um, but she's like, this is going to change the way Americans eat. And she's not wrong. There was no frozen food section. That did not exist before Clarence Bird's Eye. It's completely changes everything. What is interesting to me is that it takes her three years to convince him to sell. He must have been driving a hard bargain and or like didn't want to deal with a woman. Like I can that's a long time to be negotiating uh, about this. Like she must have been offering him top dollar if she thought it was going to be this revolutionary. And spoiler alert, it was that revolutionary. But that's just interesting to me that she like had the tenacity to like keep up and after him for three years before he finally was like, all right, fine. I definitely think, too, he had a sense of, like, how much the, his patents and his innovations were worth because when they eventually get purchased by the General Foods Corporation, they buy them for his company and all of the patents associated with them for $22 million, which today is, like, $350 million. So Bird's Eye definitely was holding out for the payday. And there's a lot of really interesting science about what Bird's Eye did, which somebody who is not me will have to explain to, to all our listeners someday, because I do not understand what he does that is different than what they were doing before. Something to do with ice crystals. That's literally all I understand. <laughs> but here she is. She is one of the wealthiest women in America. She owns one of the most successful companies in America. And she is just living well for herself. And I love that she's so successful in this one aspect of her life. She's perhaps, depending on how you think about it, maybe a little less successful in her personal life. Rebecca, how many husbands did she have? She, in fact, had four husbands. Good for her. Good for her. Her first one is named Edward Bennett Close. He's a banker. She marries him when she's only 18, which might give you a clue about where that one went south. But very much the way it was in that era, you know. True. she's oh, She's from... At this point, her father's got some financial business success. She's finished her, her bit of education she's going to get. You got married. That's what you did. That's true. They have two daughters. One of their daughters, Eleanor Post Close. Why would you, if your last name was Close and your maiden name was Post, why would you name your daughter Eleanor Post Close? That's just hard. That's mean. <laughs> anyway, she will go on to have six husbands. So not to be outdone is, by her own mother. And in fact, you want to hear my pop culture reference, Becca? Are you ready for this one? Yes. I'm so ready. You are. Uh, so her and Edward Bennett Close get divorced. They divorced in 1919. They will both go on to have other spouses. One of his later spouses he has more children with, and his granddaughter is Glenn Close, the actress. The actress. Yay! I love that. Husband number two. So yeah, the... <laughs> first marriage about 14 years but this is he's the husband who is with her when she becomes the head of this company and I have to imagine to an extent you know he marries her he doesn't think he's going to marry a CEO 
and they're only married about five years. They divorce about five years after she takes over the company. And I, I have to believe that that's a factor in this. He was marrying a sweet, nice little 18-year-old girl with some family money, a little bit of money that she might come into. I don't think he expected to be married to a CEO. No. And they divorced in 1919 when she is, let's do the math on that one. So 30-something, 30-ish? I was told there would be no math. Okay, I was told there'd be enough. Fair enough. (laughs) And then she remarries in 1920. So if you're keeping track, that's the next year. I'm just going to lay that out for you. Her second husband is a financier. His name is Edward Francis Hutton. He's the chairman of the board. So she trusts him with business decisions. They have one daughter, Becca. Who's their daughter? Dina Merrill. Yeah. She becomes the actress Dina Merrill. And wouldn't you just love it if like Dina Merrill and Glenn Close acted on something? Like they weren't sisters themselves, but they had sisters in common. Anyway, (laughs) um, there's very much a roaring 20s lifestyle for these two. They're in New York and Palm Beach and it's fabulous. And, you know, they're all over the place. Uh, They are going to get divorced in 1935. So again, about 15 years. I think she's figured out the shelf life of a marriage at this yeah. point. Yep. I think that's where she's at. Um, husband number three, Joseph E. Davies. She marries him in 1935, which is, if you're keeping track, the same year she divorces husband number two. Davies is really, I think, the most interesting of her sort of husbands. He's appointed the U.S. ambassador to Russia or the Soviet Union by that time from 1937 to 38. So they've been married a couple of years. She is in charge of this company. He's a lawyer and a politician and a diplomat. And they're going to go over to the Soviet Union in the 30s, which must have been super interesting. And this is kind of where she gets a collection of a bunch of stuff because there's the rush, the Soviet Union are selling a bunch of Russian czarist art and objects dart and all that stuff. And uh, she's where Marjorie Merriweather Post is like, yeah, I'll buy this stuff. And she buys it and ships it back home to Washington. And it is still in her DC mansion, which we're going to talk about a little bit later. Um, they are married actually 20 years they get divorced in 1955. I think because he was the most interesting of the three. And so she didn't get that 15-year itch. Yep. It's a 20-year itch in this case. Because <laughs> um. Um, he was ambassador to the Soviet Union, but he was also ambassador to Belgium and Luxembourg. So they got to just run with a very like international crowd. I think she had a chance to broaden her horizons with him in a way she hadn't had a chance to before. And I think that is why it's the longest of her marriages. I find it just so interesting to me that she lives four different lives for a while. Like the first husband, she's the wife and mother. The second husband, she's the party girl in the twenties. The third husband, she's the, you know, ambassador's wife. And this whole time she's raising three daughters, running a company and also kind of like being awesome generally. So she has these three like distinct parts of her personality her fourth husband herbert may is a businessman they're going to get married in 1958 and they divorce in 1964 so this is the shortest lived of her marriages after her last marriage she's going to reclaim the marjorie merriweather post name that she keeps until her death probably because you keep adding husbands you're adding last names it gets to be a little bit you know lengthy (laughs) i guess when you're that wealthy you can just re-embroider everything every time And just keep adding your new monogram. (laughs) But I do, I love that she sort of, after this last fourth marriage, just says, you know what? I'm Marjorie Merriweather Post. That is who I am. She was very proud to be her father's daughter. Because of her father's mental illness, she was actually very acutely aware of the impact of things like mental illness. She was um, not a total teetotaler per se, but she was not a big drinker. She was not a big imbiber as it were uh, in many of the things that were popular in that time and I think there was some pride there in what she had built in her father's name so that reclaiming of Marjorie Merriweather Post I think is really beautiful kind of in that last phase of her life and I also would like to just jump in and say you know we've talked about some really badass women on this pod starting with Alice Roosevelt Longworth we've mentioned Evelyn Walsh McLean the two of them and Marjorie Merriweather Post were 
almost exactly the same age. They're within three or four years of each other. Uh, another woman we've talked about, Alice Pike Barney, was about a generation older, but these women all knew each other. You know, eventually we're going to talk about Marguerite Cassini and uh, Sissy Patterson on the pod because they're really interesting too. DC's not a big place, particularly in the 20s and 30s, particularly at their level of society. These are all very wealthy women who move in political circles, have more money than they know what to do with. And so a lot of these women know each other. They hang out, they spend time together, they gossip about whatever together. Like so many of the women that we know, we've talked about on this pod are going to, at this era, know each other. So, you know, Evel Mosh McLean went to high school with Marjorie Merriweather Post. They live across the street from Alice Roosevelt Longworth. They're all connected. These are all people who spent time in the same social circle. And I would say a lot of these women were involved in the same causes, the same sort of philanthropies. Um, Marjorie Merriweather Post was connected to the suffrage movement. She's sort of in that last wave, as it were, sort of in the fight for the 19th Amendment. You know, so these women were sort of running around in similar circles in terms of their causes as well and kind of what they were doing with their time and with their money. And I kind of love that. I love that idea of all of them sort of mixing together. And another woman they would have known in their circle as well is Eleanor Roosevelt, cousin to Alice, um, also similarly very wealthy, about the same age. Um, Eleanor didn't spend all of her time in Washington, particularly after Franklin took ill, but she was here for quite a while and she would have known a bunch of these women. She was similarly socially active. Um, So this is, you know, a, a very tight knit, society of wealthy women let's talk about her philanthropy though (laughs) yeah touching on her philanthropy though she's got money to burn we're going to talk about how she spent that money in a minute when we talk about all of her many estates and what was kept inside but she was very much focused on philanthropy in her lifetime during the first world war she funds an army hospital in france Uh, And I mean, like, for hundreds of thousands of dollars, funds this massive army hospital. She does so much to help with the treatment of soldiers in France that the French government will eventually award her the Legion of Honor, which is a pretty big deal over in France. During the Great Depression, she finances and supervises a Salvation Army station in New York City, which is one of the places where she regularly lived. She also donates quite a bit of money. In fact, my understanding is a significant portion, probably, like, more than half for the construction of the Boy Scouts headquarters in Washington, D.C. The Boy Scouts of America were so moved by her generosity to their organization that she eventually is awarded the Silver Fawn Award. Uh, She was one of the first three recipients of that. I find that really notable because she had daughters. She didn't have any sons. So her interest and kind of financial support of the Boy Scouts was really selfless. It was just because she believed in what the organization was doing. And then during World War II, you know, it's World War II. She's in ambassador's wife. She wants to help in the war cause. Um, And she's like, well, you know what I have? I have this insane yacht. I have this yacht that I've been like (laughs) using as a floating embassy. And she goes to Franklin D. Roosevelt and she's like, why don't you use my yacht? And he's like, it's too beautiful to be sacrificed. What if your yacht got torpedoed? And she's like, no, 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 you must. So it's used during the war as a weather ship. It's not used as like a battleship or anything. But they're for, for like legal reasons, she can't just give it to them for free. So the Navy pays her $1 a year to use her yacht, the most expensive yacht ever built at the time it was built. So imagine being the Navy guys that got to be on that thing. Yeah, that'd be my kind of assignment. I'll tell you what. Um, and she also has a real interest in art and music. She will fund artistic and musical societies and groups and organizations across the country. A fun little activity would be like next time you go to a theatrical event or a musical concert in your city, check out if you can find post anywhere in the donor list because it's probably there. Uh, she was part of some of the earliest funds for the construction of the National Cultural Center that became what we know today as the Kennedy Center for the performing arts. So just massive amounts of philanthropy. She was no stranger to giving money away. She was also no stranger to spending it in really, really big ways. So let's talk, Rebecca, about the estates of Marjorie Merriweather Post. There's so many, and they're all better than the last. 
We're just going to talk about like the five biggest ones. Yeah, which means that there are others, friends. The five biggest. Invest in real estate. Yeah, right. Um, she has an apartment in New York City with 54 rooms. Can you imagine New York? I mean, granted, this was not right now in New York, but still, New York real estate has never been cheap. 54 rooms. That's, it's, I can't, it's mind boggling to me. It was essentially like the first real penthouse in New York City. It was basically developed for her. 14 stories on Fifth Avenue. It was absolutely insane. It, it was a 14-story building. And then she had like all of the top three floors that were like just for her that nobody else could go to. Um, but it was kind of the first penthouse for somebody in New York City. It's just sort of insane to me that it existed. I was trying to find the square footage, but 54 rooms should give you an idea of just how insane it was. Yeah. So she also has a estate in Florida that is famous, but not connected with her. So you would, you probably have heard of it. It's called Mar-a-Lago. Yep. That same, very, very same one. Uh, she is going to build that herself. She pays for it to be built with her second husband. She spends about $7 million in 20, 1920s dollars, which is about $105 million today. So not cheap. It has or had 58 bedrooms, 33 bathrooms, 29 foot long marble dinner table. What? 12 fireplaces and three bomb shelters. For Florida. For Florida. <laughs> Where in Florida do you need 12 fireplaces? Right. Mar-a-Lago is down in the south of Florida. Like, you don't need, when do you have a fire in Florida? Like two days out of the year. She also has three bomb shelters, which is crazy. Who builds <laughs> bomb shelters in the 20s? Somebody who's thinking ahead. Clearly, right? Um, she leaves it in her will as a winter White House for presidents and foreign dignitaries. But Nixon and Carter don't really use it. So it's returned to the family in 1981. It was listed for sale, but no one was interested. And it actually... Can I just jump in there and say, listed for sale in the 80s. And even with the excess of the 1980s, nobody was like, I'm buying this 58-bedroomed mansion. No one wants it. Like, it was too much even for the 80s. And for the young people listening. Right. When you're too much for the 80s, like the decade of conspicuous consumption, help, you know, imagine this place. Anyway, no one's interested. It's slated for demolition. And then someone else buys it. <laughs> and perhaps we'll leave it at that. that yeah, I think we're just going to leave it there. Um, I will say I am very glad that it was not demolished. Yes. That I will say. I'm very glad it was not demolished because it's sort of mind-boggling to me that there was a point in 1981, 1982, that this could have been torn down, this beautiful work of architectural art that she created. Uh, so I'm very glad to know it's still standing today at the very least. Yes. Um, she also had a camp called Camp Topridge. This was in the Adirondacks in New York. This was sort of like, you know, a lot of wealthy people in this era, they had kind of like, you'd go to Bar Harbor, you'd go to Palm Springs, or you'd go to the Hamptons. She's like, no, 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 I want like, I want something rural. I want a little rural retreat. So, and that's what she called it. She called it her rural retreat. Um, she bought it in 1920. She fully oversees the renovations in 1923. So while she's building Mar-a-Lago, she's having this built as well. This little camp, this little tiny rural retreat, 68 buildings, a fully staffed main lodge, private guest cabins, each with their own personal butler. So if you were a guest, you got a butler with your cabin, and it covered about 207 acres. So so a little, a little rural retreat. A little teeny tiny cabin in the Nothing woods. Nothing fancy or big. She, the, when it was originally purchased and developed, you could only get there by water, which explains why she constantly needed these yachts. <laughs> uh, 
Eventually, they would put in helipads so people could helicopter in. But it used to be you could only get there by water. It was very isolated. And she did a lot of, uh, we, we should have touched on this earlier briefly, but she was very much a collector. She had a great eye for art, for furnishing, for antiquities. But she also developed an interest in native art and collecting things that belong to the first peoples of the New York region. And so that's what she decorated all of this camp with. And when she died, she had most of the furnishings left to the Smithsonian Institute. And quite a few of the things that she had displayed at Camp Topridge are now in the Smithsonian National Museum of the American Indian. So again, as much as she was a collector for herself, that philanthropic side really comes out with her donations. And when she dies, she donates the property to the state of New York. And she's like, okay, I'm done with this camp retreat. I'm dead. You can have it and preserve it. And what the state of New York does is basically preserves the forest. But they're like, we can't afford to just sit on this land that's been partially developed. So they sold off the acreage and it now belongs to a man named Harlan Crow, who is a real estate magnate. And I think I want to do an episode on him because I have learned about some of the crazy things he has like in his personal collections. And it's kind of bonkers. Like he's just gotten really into buying up weird stuff. And I'm like really interested in it. I mean, he has bought things like documents that belong to Ponce de Leon and Vespucci and uh, George Washington. He has original paintings by Renoir and Monet. He has over 9,000, 10,000 books and manuscripts, including some of Abraham Lincoln's personal doodles, like little doodlings he would have done on the margins of letters. So someday I want to like, one, meet Harlan Crow and see all his cool stuff. But I also want to dive into his life on the podcast. Great. She also has an estate on Long Island called Hillwood, builds it in 1922. So you can imagine at this point in her life, she, this is, she builds a lot of these places in the early twenties. So she's divorced her first husband. She's moved on to her second husband and she goes on this like buying and building spray. Hillwood is in Brookville, New York. She's going to purchase it and then demolish the existing estate. Has a new Tudor style estate built. She's eventually going to sell it uh, in 1951, and it is now the uh, Long Island University Post campus. So another another thing she sort of donates. Yeah, no, donates at all. The estate that we are going to be most familiar with in D.C. is in D.C. She lives, as she also calls this one Hillwood, which is somewhat confusing. She's facing her third divorce, divorcing the diplomat in the 50s. And she's looking for a new home and she wants something, you know, very stately. She's at that stage in her life. Um, She wants ceilings and views of the woods and she wants to feel very rustic. And uh, she is going to purchase Arbramont, which is a Georgian colonial estate in uh, Northwest DC in 1955. It had been built in the 20s with 36 rooms. And so, of course, she guts it and rebuilds the entire thing. Uh, She wants to frame the view of the Washington Monument that she has from her estate, which honestly, I can kind of see that. Like if I had a view of the Washington Monument, I'd want to see it too. So she just rebuilds the entire interior, like to accommodate that view. Yeah. She just rebuilds the whole thing. Yeah. Um, She christens it Hillwood after her New York estate and makes it a showcase for her collections. And she is a collector she has all kinds of stuff she has a lot of russian art and religious objects that she collected during her time in the soviet union um, when you could get really inexpensive pre-bolshevik art uh, and just really no one wanted it it was not in vogue uh, and so she's going to buy a lot of that stuff up and like we mentioned earlier just ship it over she has religious icons she has paintings of the czars she has all kinds and you know if you've seen anything about the russian aristocracy man they knew how to spend their money and live well so all of this stuff is premium quality she's got jewelry and the whole thing uh she also collects french and asian art as well she has a chandelier from the catherine palace because again the soviet union is just selling this stuff and no one really wants it. She's got some Fabergé eggs, which is amazing. Fabergé makes eggs. He made a bunch of them for the czar to give to his wife and mother. 
and they're all unique, very collectible and very valuable. And she has several of them in her estate at Hillwood. You can go see it. And I mean, that's kind of in addition to having what a lot of women and our, you know, collectors in this era had, which is an extensive collection of just like European classics, European art and architecture and fine art goods and like furniture. So she was collecting all of that kind of typical stuff in addition to then going out and buying the stuff that nobody was buying off the Soviet Union. But because of her, really her upbringing from the fact that she sort of gets married to a banker when she's 18, she starts her collecting life then. And with kind of each phase of her life and with each husband, she starts building and collecting new things. So by the time she's done with her 20-year marriage to Davies and has been all over the world, her collection is so extensive. Like, it's really hard to express, I think, without showing somebody Hellwood how expansive she was in her life and her collecting. Most people zero in and collect one or two kinds of things. She really spans um, eras and locations and styles. And she's like, I want to showcase this stuff. I've been doing this. You know, I've been collecting and doing these things for 40, 45 years. I want to show them off to everybody. And so her entire plan with this house is like, I'm not going to be here by myself. This is going to be my show palace. And she just invites people in. Invites her friends over, family, starts having events. She becomes the talk of Washington. It's really still to this day a very gorgeous estate. She also, and this is particularly really amazing, she's going to open up Hillwood to Vietnam veterans, including wounded servicemen from Bethesda Naval Hospital and Walter Reed Army Medical Center. She's going to have teas and events for them, sort of bring them into her estate. And you're thinking to yourself, wait, Vietnam, I think they must have misspoken. No, we did not misspeak. She lives into the Vietnam era. Um, She is going to die in 1973, spoiler alert, but in her 70s is going to open up this show palace of a home to wounded veterans from the war in Vietnam. She, in 1962, sets up a special, an estate for Hillwood to go put it to the Smithsonian Institution uh, along with a $10 million endowment. She's going to put a lot of stipulations in place, which the Smithsonian doesn't really love. uh, And they are going to return the house to the Post Foundation after her death in 1976. Uh, It opens as a public historic house a year later, uh, which is what it is today. So yeah, there's a a few little things that go into this, right? She, in the 1960s, realizes, okay, I'm, I'm getting older. I have, you know, my three daughters. They're going to get plenty. Like, they've got trust funds. They've got things. I know I want to give away a lot of what I have. But with the estate, she really doesn't just want to turn it over with a very general vague, like, this is for your use, the way she does with some other things. She wants to maintain it as it is. And so she goes, okay, the Smithsonian Institution, this is the perfect place for this. And I'm going to set up this $10 million endowment. And that's going to be more than enough money for them to maintain this. I have set everything up. The place is paid off. It's not like they have to pay anything. But she's going to be very, very specific about her stipulations on how this is to be operated, how they are to run it. Like, if you want this, these are all the hoops you have to jump through. And the Smithsonian doesn't really like that. When she dies in 1973, and they all of a sudden get this giant block of legal text that says, here's your gift of this house and 17,000 objects that go with it, but you have to do 101 things to keep it. Smithsonian kind of immediately is like, no. They're like, this is not enough money to run this. This is so much manpower. These stipulations are ridiculous. They go before a judge. There are like court hearings on this to see if it even stands up in court. Uh, And eventually Smithsonian walks away and returns it to the Post Foundation. But I sort of find it really interesting because like she really did want it to be part of the Smithsonian but she also made it really kind of hard for them to keep this I can kind of see it like people want things the way that they want them and she had a definite vision for what was gonna happen to her stuff yeah oh yeah there's the kind of money that a woman like Marjorie Merriweather Post would spend to upkeep this beautiful house. And then there's the kind of money a place like Smithsonian Institute has to operate its museums. And those are there's a huge, a huge gap between what those amounts of money are. So to her, $10 million in an endowment probably seemed like a lot. Honestly, though, knowing what it costs to operate a huge private museum, that's not a lot of money for perpetuity. 
So I'm so glad that the Post Foundation turns around and says, well, we have money as the Post Foundation. She left money for these kinds of activities. We can do this. So I'm so glad it's still a public house museum as she intended. I am a little sad it's not part of the Smithsonian. And it is, if you have not been to Hillwood, listeners, it is incredible. Over 17,000 objects on display. This includes everything we've listed before, plus her personal items. Her clothing is on display. She, on average, had four different outfits for the day. So depending on her activities, she had a morning outfit. She usually had like her social engagement outfit or her work outfit for the day. Then she had her dinner. She dressed for dinner. And then there was evening outfit. Even her like casual relaxing outfits were all planned. And because she lives such a long life and she lives like Rebecca kind of said so beautifully, she kind of lives four lives with each husband. She sort of has a different role. When you look at her clothing in particular, it spans everything from kind of that turn of the century, more conservative, into the flapper look in the roaring 20s, into kind of the sophisticated ambassador's wife, um, very sort of um, cosmopolitan 1940s and 50s, into sort of her like wealthy dowager sort of vibe towards the end. Um, I also love that like any good shopper, if she likes something, she would either buy it in multiple colors or if she liked it, she'd have a seamstress make multiple ones in different colors. So if you look at her like clothing collection, you'll start to be like, I've seen that dress before, but it was pink because she just was like, I like it and I'm going to have it in every color. And then finally two beautiful expansive gardens. I just want to mention that too. Her daughter, Dina Merrill, is a, an actress. By the late 60s and into the 70s, Dina Merrill is pretty famous. So she's going to have some of her clothes and things like that. So she, there's a little bit of Hollywood glamour, which is really interesting. And so there's a lot kind of going on at Hillwood. There's a lot on display. It's an absolutely massive house and estates and the gardens are really great. So it is worth checking out if you're in the D.C. area. She's going to die at Hillwood in 1973 at the age of 86. Uh, it is also where she's buried today. In the Rose Garden. In the Rose Garden, yeah. It's lovely. And that's kind of her jam. She's long lived. Her daughter, Dina Merrill, is long lived. Um, so she's going to span basically the late 1800s all the way through to the Vietnam era. Hollywood has not made a movie out of her, but they really should. She lives several different lives and I think just must have been an absolutely fascinating person. Yeah, I, it's kind of amazing because she dies in 73 and then you sort of have almost this like little afterlife of the next five to 10 years where like all of these estates and holdings and businesses start to get divvied up and, and sold and brought back. And like, so she's very much in the news. Like if you go through the Washington Post archives in the 70s, her name still comes up so much because she plants all these seeds for before she dies. She was well prepared for death and well prepared for how she wanted her money spent that then over the next five to ten years there's constant coverage about well she gave money to this group and now five years later they're finally able to do this or this was a building she funded and now it's completed and here's where this estate ended up and here's here's this winter white house that maybe these presidents will use and then they never use it and it gets kind of mentioned like nixon gets asked why he doesn't use it and he just doesn't like going down to florida which fair um can't can't disagree with Nixon there but it's sort of kind of amazing because she does she lives her life then this afterlife and then her her estate at Hillwood kind of lives on I would really love to see a Marjorie Merriweather post movie um, I think her life is just incredible and interesting you can see her in one Hollywood film that I have not seen but I made my husband put on our Netflix queue immediately because we still get Netflix by disc because we're 100 years old <laughs> and the movie is called Mission to Moscow Mission to Moscow was made in 1943, and it is based on Ambassador Davies' book. He wrote a memoir about his time as ambassador to the Soviet Union, which you can imagine during World War II, there was a lot of interest in the Soviet Union. They were our allies in World War II. Um, so he's got this book, and so Hollywood's like, yes, let's make a movie about the Soviet Union, you know, at a time that we're all friendly with them. And so she's like a pretty major character in his memoir. He writes a lot about her. So in the movie, she is a major player. So I'm really interested to watch this movie, and I will definitely report back and see if it's any good. But that is, to the best of my research, the only time she's been featured 
significantly in a film. She does get mentioned a lot in documentaries, especially about like food in America um, and kind of her work with the Post Company, but not a lot about her life and her as an individual. That's unfortunate. She's really interesting. There should be more about her. (laughs) And of course, I think if you are interested in anything we've said on the podcast today, I would definitely, definitely suggest visiting Hillwood. Hillwood, if you haven't been or if you haven't been in a while, if it's been 10 or 15 years, I suggest you come back and, and check it out. They've done some really great work on the exhibitions there, really showcasing not just Hillwood and its collections, but really, I think, telling more of Marjorie's story in the house today than they used to previously. Um, It is open right now at the time that we're recording this, so April of 2021. Right now, due to COVID, you do need advanced reservations, so time tickets um, are required to enter the estate, but it's well worth it. They're also bringing back some really fun outdoor programming Mm -hmm. this summer. It is just a beautiful place to spend time. It is. It's really lovely. One of my favorite favorite places in dc um it's easy to pretend for like a little bit that like this is your home and you are living among all these beautiful objects i know and it's also very much not dc like it's very much out of the mainstream or not mainstream but it's very like it's wooded almost there's extensive gardens and you don't really realize you're in a downtown city so it's really beautiful um definitely thumbs up to hillwood Uh, And that is Marjorie Merriweather Post, another of our fabulous ladies that we love to talk about. Thank you guys again for coming along on our journey uh, and for supporting the pod. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find us on all the social media channels. We are on the Twitters at Tour Guide Tell. We are on Facebook and Instagram at Tour Guide Tell All. You can email us, tourguidetellall at gmail.com. We love to hear from people. We love if when you pitch the pod, if you have ideas for things you want to talk about, if something sparks your interest and you want to hear from us, uh, we'd love to hear about that and we'll put it on our schedule. Thanks again very much to our patrons. And we will be back next week in May with more fun stuff. Thank you guys so much for listening. Um, we're I'm really excited for our May episodes. So we will see you guys then. Thank you guys. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.